Well, it's not how you start the race that matters. It's how you finish the race. That's what's often said, isn't it? And the people of this book, the people of the book of 1 Kings, knew that as much as anyone. How they had started well, the glory days of Solomon and David. But now, how had they seemed to finish? Well, they live in exile. Overpowered by a foreign nation, all their glory gone. They sit weeping. It's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. The problem for them was they just didn't know why. They didn't know how it had happened. Why had it all gone so wrong? We had Solomon, the wisest man who had ever lived. What happened? Sounds like an odd question for us to think about this morning until we reason, until we realize uh, that it's a question that gets asked all the time. It seems that no more than six to nine months go by before we hear of another big fall, a big fall from grace. Think for a moment of that famous golden boy of golf, Tiger Woods. There he was. It seemed like he could do no wrongs, had every sponsorship going, every success. And then there's infidelity and a fall and a crash. How did it happen? How did it all go wrong? Think uh, of Lance Armstrong, that famous uh, Tour de France winning cyclist. And it all looked great. And then we find out he's a fraud and a cheat. What happened? How did it all go wrong? It's a question, of course, we ask actually sometimes in church, isn't it? We think of those who seem to be going so well. And then we think, where are they now? What happened? How did it all go wrong? You see, those exiles sit there in Babylon. And they're asking, how did it go wrong? And they're thinking, what are we going to do now? Why, Why pick it all up again? Why go after God now? Why carry on? If the wisest man who had ever lived, King Solomon, started well, And his reign ended tragically, as we'll see this morning. Worshipping foreign gods, plagued by enemies, the nation splitting in half. If he started well and didn't finish, well, why should I even begin? Why be part of this if it'll all just fall apart and maybe it'll take me down with it? Why do it? Well, that's why this book is so important to us. You see... Uh, This book of 1 Kings is written to us and written to those first readers to to explain what went wrong, to, to show us Solomon's divided heart in order that our hearts might be mended. It's going to teach us how to live so that that doesn't happen and to give us confidence and hope for the future. I don't know about you, but I certainly want that this morning. So we're going to walk through this passage And we're going to look at five things, five things that begin with the letter C. Um, So there'll there'll be a different length, each of them in turn, but uh, we're going to look at five things that begin with the letter C. And as we get clear on these things, as we get them sorted in our minds, we'll see how they can point us to the place where our hearts can be mended. So let's look at each one in turn. Firstly, in this passage, we see competition. We should notice that there is competition for Solomon's affections. Competition 
for Solomon's heart. Now, this is striking, isn't it? Because actually, uh, if you'd known Solomon earlier in his reign, you'd have never thought this would be possible. Solomon, we were told in chapter 3, verse 3, loved the Lord, period. It seemed like there were no exceptions. Uh, It seemed like it was on account of Solomon's amazing love for the Lord that the Lord had made that amazing offer to him. Do you remember? The Lord said to Solomon, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon actually doesn't want for different things and long life and riches. There didn't seem to be really any competition for Solomon's heart. He just wanted to rule wisely. And the Lord then gives him wisdom and long life and riches and so on. So it should be as if Solomon never wants for anything. You might remember chapter 10 and how successful Solomon was. The income that he received in modern terms, billions of pounds a year. Everything he touched turned to gold. But look at the big reveal at the beginning of our passage. 1 Kings 11 verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women. The end of verse 2, Solomon clung to these in love. Here is Solomon and he has money. He has a wife, he has riches, he has a family, he has the Lord, but it seems that it wasn't enough. He needed more. There was almost a competition in his heart to find that thing that would bring him that satisfaction. For a man so wise, it's startling, isn't it, how little contentment he has. And it's startling here who he should choose to have as his wives, isn't it? Only in the last chapter did we see the Queen of Sheba turn up to visit Solomon. And she sees that he's got the wisdom of God. She sees how happy the people are with him. How blessed they are. She came to receive a blessing from Solomon. You know, the kingdom of Israel was supposed to be the place where blessing came to the nations. And yet Solomon somehow isn't content with that. He's not even content to marry one of his own people who loves that wisdom. No, he loves those who are not in his kingdom. Those who love other gods. It is startling who he he falls in love with, that he falls in love with women who are actually descendants of the Canaanites, who are the enemies of the Lord. He falls in love with them, and not only that, he marries them, 700 of them, and he has concubines too. Apparently, if you spread out all these weddings over the 40 years of Solomon's reign, there would be the equivalent of a wedding every three weeks. Wow. Wow. So there is competition for Solomon's affection, his heart being given away to all sorts of others. Now, some would argue these marriages were for political reasons. Marry into Egypt and you can have peace with them and trade with them. Well, then it's just empire building, isn't it, really? And 700 wives, really, for empire building like that? We're told Solomon clung to these women in love. Solomon's heart was divided It wasn't true to the Lord, and it wasn't likely to be true to the Lord for much longer, really, was it? There is competition in Solomon's heart. He loves others. 
Now put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Think of what that competition is like in a relationship. Imagine for a moment a Christian who marries a non-Christian. Now the Christian might say, look, I'm going to love the Lord. He's going to have the first place in my life. And I'll love my spouse as my spouse. But what's it like for their other half? What's it like for the non-Christian? Well, they, they don't love the Lord first and foremost. All they've got is their relationship and their vision of where it will be. And so for the non-Christian in the relationship, their partner is everything. They're the ultimate. They're their only access to everything that they want to come true. Imagine the intensity of that, of being pulled to be someone's hope and deliverance, to get them what they want. We're not designed to be anyone's God. And such is the pressure that Solomon finds himself under, having married these foreign women. In the end, there's not just a temple on the mountain in Jerusalem, but temples to other gods on all the mountains around the city, each one for the wives, uh, for, for his foreign wives and their foreign gods. It's for very good reason, friends, that Christians are, are commanded not to marry unbelievers, isn't it? Not for any personal reason, but for the tension and the pull and the pressure that you can be put under. It is so intense. It is really, really hard. I mean, we struggle, don't we, to wage war with our own wayward desires. Imagine how much tougher it is when you have someone else's too. Solomon had other loves, and those other loves pulled him away. What other loves do we have, we might ask? It's worth pausing, I guess, as we think about this to say, if you are a Christian this morning and you are thinking about getting engaged or getting married to someone who is not a Christian, please don't marry someone who has not trusted the Lord. Take a long, hard look in the mirror. Are you willing to reject the word of the Lord on this? Are you, frankly, willing to put yourself under years of pressure and turmoil? Don't do it. Solomon, I think, stands to warn us against it, doesn't he? I know there are those Christians who have married unbelievers, partners whom they love dearly. And I'm sure if there's anything that they would say about it, it would be this, that it's tough, that it is really tough. But I guess it's also worth saying that if we found ourselves in that situation of being married to an unbeliever, the Bible is clear about what we must do now that we're there. We mustn't run away for whatever reason we were married. We must stick with them. You see, all marriages, even that kind of marriage, matters to God. It is supposed to be an image of how Christ loves the church and the church loves the Lord. Friend, don't feel guilty if you are in that situation. Know that Christ has paid for your guilt. And know too that the Lord can be at work in your marriage. So stick at it. You should be so faithful in that marriage that your partner is thrilled to have married a Christian because of how Christ's love compels you to faithfulness, honesty, humility and love. So Solomon's heart here searches for other loves. He clings to relationship and he finds that his heart is not just torn by those other women 
and their loves. But they become his as well. And like so many things, this big fall, this big tragedy, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It hasn't just happened on these, at these public moments of marriage. Now, this big fall, it had happened a long time before. It had been rumbling on in his heart. It's in his heart, isn't it? If we see anything here this morning, we see that sin begins in the heart, doesn't it? In the competition for our affections. Who is going to be our ultimate commitment? Our hearts are that place where we do all our emotion. We do all our thinking and feeling and willing. And it is there. There is where the battle is. Friends, that makes all the difference for us, doesn't it? To see that, to know that. To know that sin isn't just about, oh, I'm not going to tell a lie. It's about, why did I want to tell that lie? What was going on in my heart? Ask myself, why am I justifying this course of action? Keep a close watch on your heart and don't give it away to another. So, number one. There's competition for Solomon's heart and his affections. But number two, there are commands of the Lord. Commands of the Lord disbelieve. Look at verse two. Verse two tells us that Solomon married all these foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Shocking, isn't it? Solomon, we're reminded here, ought to know the word of the Lord. Indeed, he does know the word of the Lord. Not just for the people at large that they shouldn't marry women from foreign nations, but actually that kings specifically shouldn't do it. But why then did he? I mean, I suppose if it was only one marriage, we might think, well, I guess he's wise, but he can make maybe one mistake. But it happens again and again and again, doesn't it? Surely, surely then that can only be because he doesn't take this command of the Lord seriously. And he doesn't believe what the Lord says. I take it that Solomon ignores the command of the Lord because the Lord has said, don't marry them, for they will surely turn your heart after their gods. And Solomon thinks to himself, nah, that'll never happen to me. You can almost imagine it, can't you? He marries this Egyptian princess. Um, and, and we can imagine the scene. You kiss the bride. You walk out the church. And there's the confetti. And the photographer comes. And Solomon's thinking, oh, well, that went all right, didn't it? He hasn't. My wife hasn't turned my heart away yet. And later down the road, he takes a liking to a Moabite princess. Actually, he's told, well, it's a good idea, this. will help with our relationship with Moab. Why don't you marry her? And same thing happens. They walk out of the church, and he doesn't immediately become a Moabite god-worshipper. Actually, things seem to be absolutely fine. So maybe Solomon convinces himself, it's different with me. I must be immune. God was wrong on this. These women aren't going to change my heart he thinks gosh pause for a moment how many times have I thought something daft like that 
It's so easy, isn't it? How often have I thought either I can live on the edge, I can walk the tightrope with sin and not fall off, or I've thought to myself, it's only a small thing, that. Hardly matters at all. It'll be fine. But note the reality here, though. It's not fine, is it? I mean, it seems fine for a bit, but then it's not. Look at verse 3. Solomon, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You see, it was actually only a matter of time, wasn't it? When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. Solomon thought he could marry with abandon. Nothing would happen to him. And he didn't believe God's word. But little by little, he was falling off the wagon, wasn't he? I read this this week, uh, something one pastor wrote, and, and I just thought this put it well. One pastor writes this, A small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Sin often begins with what we may feel like is a, a minor concession, maybe an allowance for this shortcoming, a, a brief indulgence for that desire. But that simple change of direction can set you on a deadly course. Brief bit of flirtation. I I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm getting emotionally attached. But sometimes that's appropriate, right? Sometimes that's okay. Oh, I know, it's a little bit of spending on myself. I know, miserable Mondays just... A little bit of an Amazon comfort. That's only a little bit of materialism. It's fine, right? Oh, that offload of gossip. That small whinge. That chance to have a moan. Now I feel better. No harm done. Nothing going wrong here. No one need ever know. Or maybe it's that minor stroll through some internet pictures. There's not enough on show there for them to count as pornography, is there? My my heart's okay with this, isn't it? To see what happens. Sin is minimised, the word of God not taken seriously, and the outcome of it all questioned. And that's what did it for Solomon, isn't it? How did it all go wrong? He ignored the word of the Lord. He didn't believe what God said. And so in those little moments, little by little, his heart was turned away. And we think these little moments are disconnected from the rest of life. But Solomon's life here shows us that they are not. They're not isolated, but they're more like the lighting of a fuse. It is always eventually followed by a bang. It is like the tumbling of the first domino. Eventually, everything will fall down. These moments are not like a domino on its own and it's fallen over and it's okay. Everything's still intact. No, it brings the house down. I think for just a moment, what a difference it would make in our own daily obedience if we saw sin like this. Solomon, in a series of moments and marriages, ignored the command of the Lord. And not long after, 
we see the collapse. There was competition in Solomon's heart. His heart was divided. He gave his heart away. And the command of God was ignored and disbelieved. And, and then, number three, there was a collapse. What do we call it? Is it a collapse of the will? Well, no, here I think it's described as a collapse of the heart. Solomon's heart is not wholly true to the Lord anymore. And in those later years, verse 5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth and Milcom. And we see in verse 7, he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Here is Solomon, the wisest leader that Israel ever had, and he becomes a polytheist, a multiculturalist, a religious pluralist. Tragically, he doesn't bring the nations around him to the one true God, but he ends up going and worshipping them. Tragically, he who should have been famous for building the temple to the one true God spends his latter years on building projects, being temples to other gods. He said it would never happen to him. He'd never become a Muslim, an atheist, a Hindu. Well, it's happened. Amongst the people that he built temples to is Molech, to whom, I kid you not, human child sacrifices were made in his worship. It's a horror show. Verse 9 tells us the Lord was angry with Solomon. Look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And the narrator goes to lengths there, doesn't he, to explain the history of Solomon's relationship. Solomon Solomon had broken the word of the Lord that he'd been commanded on twice. I don't know about you, but if the Lord personally appeared to me and gave me a command, I think, wow, I would listen to that. Wow, I would do that. Well, look, here the Lord has appeared twice to Solomon and he didn't stay faithful even then. What a remarkably special and unique relationship that Solomon had with the Lord. The Lord appeared twice to him and he was unfaithful. How awful then is this collapse, crushing what had been so beautiful before. Oh, how wretched to have wrecked it all with God. Friends, the collapse here isn't just the collapse of things falling apart, as surely they do. But it's just as awful what happens in Solomon's relationship with the Lord, isn't it? That's what's ruined in the midst of all this, isn't it? Oh, we should stop and think about that in our own lives, shouldn't we? God brings Solomon into discipline and judgment. Verse 11 says, The kingdom will be taken from him and given to a servant. Not yet, and not all of it, but the kingdom will be torn in half. That's still to come. It's a terrible collapse. It's a terrible collapse Solomon thought would never happen. That's awful. But actually, God is kind and gracious to him here. But there are still, number four, fourth C, there are still consequences. There are consequences. Look, the Lord is angry with him. 
There are consequences to come, and there are consequences in the present for Solomon, aren't there? In the rest of this chapter, we're told three times that the Lord raised up adversaries for Solomon. Solomon, in his latter years, is plagued by enemies. They're described in quite a lot of detail, actually. As you skim them, what you notice is that each of these enemies that the Lord brings up for Solomon is connected or mentioned uh, in connection with David. One of the great things that happened for Solomon in his early years was that David's enemies were dealt with. But now it's like David's enemies come back. It's like already there are consequences, Solomon's reign being unwound. But there are consequences also in how we see Solomon, actually, at the end of this. The final thing we remember about Solomon is how these enemies afflicted him. And look how they're described. So look, verse 14, we're told the Lord raised up this guy called Hadad. And here are the key things we're to see about him. We're told he fled to Egypt. We're told that while he was there, he found favor with Pharaoh. We're told that by the end of that time, he said to Pharaoh, let me go. Remind you of anything? Hadad's story kind of reminds us of Israel's story. Fleeing to Egypt, Joseph finding favor in Egypt, and then later the people under Moses called on Pharaoh to let us go. See, here's Hadad, this Edomite, this enemy of Solomon, and he seems like Israel. What does that leave Solomon looking like? I mean, he kind of looks like the Canaanites in the promised land to which Hadad is going. Solomon in 1 Kings has kind of been hinted at at being a bit like a Pharaoh figure, actually, in the past. Now he's portrayed as a Canaanite. And then look at verse 23. We're told about another enemy, Rezon. And Rezon is described. And we're told that he forms this marauding band of soldiers in the wilderness. What does that remind you of in the Bible? Well, it reminds me of David um, hiding in the wilderness with his band of guys with him when Saul is after him. You see, (laughs) when we look at Rezon, we see Solomon almost feels like a bit of a Saul kind of figure. And I think we see that again with Jeroboam, the other enemy who comes up in verse 26. Jeroboam, if you skim this for his edited highlights, he's this young, successful, industrious guy in the inner court. Again, feels a bit like that harpist in the inner court with Saul, a bit like David. And he meets a prophet from Shiloh as David met Samuel from Shiloh. And the Lord makes a covenant with Jeroboam, just as The Lord made a covenant with David. Do you see? Jeroboam looks a bit like David. And what's Solomon doing? He's just trying to get in the way. He's being a Saul figure again. You see, the consequences are that we we see Solomon awfully, terribly. At the end of his life, we don't get the final word on his wonderful wisdom. He looks like a tragic figure. Oh, how I would never want that to become me. And then he's dead. And look at the, look at the final words of the book, uh, of this section, rather. Look at verse 41. It's hardly a glowing endorsement. It's pretty, pretty terse. Um, now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. 
the end. The end. Gosh, wow. (laughs) Well, Ollie, I thought you were going to help us with this passage. (laughs) I thought you were going to tell us something to give us hope. I thought you were going to help our hearts to be mended. We've seen the competition for Solomon's heart. Uh, We have seen the commands of God ignored. We've seen the collapse. We've seen the consequences. But now we get some confidence. Now we get some confidence. Yes, confidence. Because you see, despite everything that goes wrong in this chapter, there are actually some really big positives, I think. Uh, The nation and Solomon come under judgment. And actually, the judgment that was promised by the Lord was that the people would go into exile. Uh, That the Lord would cast them out of the promised land, but that he would also cast the temple out of his vision as well. But none of that stuff happens, does it? None of that stuff happens right away. The Lord is patient. Now, that's a cause for (laughs) rejoicing in what's a terrible chapter, isn't it? But the other great positive in this chapter is that the Lord stays faithful to his promises. He doesn't abandon his promises to David and Solomon, does he? He rips almost everything away from Solomon. Twelve tribes of Israel, ten of them are torn away, separated from the line of David. But get this, (laughs) the line of David, the line of the promise is kept open. It is kept open. Now, why keep that open if there is no hope? Why keep that open if Solomon really is the wisest king who would ever live? Why keep that open if things would never, ever be better than Solomon ever again? Just makes no sense, does it? But you see, the Lord kept that line open. He kept that way open because he was fulfilling his promises Because one day from that small kingdom, another king would arise. In David's town to David's line would come one born wiser than Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king who succeeded where Solomon failed, who got it all right and got nothing wrong. He is the king whose heart was never divided, who loved God even to the end. And though his affections faced competition, though he was tempted to ignore the commands of God, he never pushed the domino. He never lit the fuse. He didn't collapse. And he didn't face consequences for his own failures because there were none. He faced the consequences, yes, but he faced ours. He experienced a royal tragedy. Jesus experienced a fall from grace, but it was ours. It wasn't for him. It was meant for us. Jeered as king one day, crucify him, they jeered days later. Mocked, spat on, beaten, nailed to a cruel cross. Jesus' heart was divided. Jesus' heart was torn in two. So that we could be made whole again. You see, as Solomon fails, the door is left open for one greater than Solomon. One who has wisdom and actually walks in it. He walks the life. He walks the path that we never could. Because you see, it was never supposed to be about what we can do. It was always and only ever supposed to be about what the Lord can do for us. Only ever about his faithfulness. 
His heart was broken for me, for my broken heart. He faced the consequences of my sin, so I never have to. His faithfulness, his perfect life, given to me in an amazing exchange. He takes my sin and I get his righteousness. He, as it were, intercepts the fall. The fall from grace, the consequences, and he takes them on himself in our place. So we started thinking about this. It's not how you start the race that matters. It's how you finish, so they say. But actually that's not true, is it? It's about how Jesus started the race. And it's about how he finished that matters. You say this morning, this seems this seems so hard and so crushing. How can I pick it all up? I feel like I'm going to fall apart. I feel like I'm going to get things wrong. What do you see? Jesus is died. Jesus is risen. So that your future could be totally secure. Jesus has dealt with your sin. Jesus' destiny is now your destiny if you trusted in Christ. Is Jesus risen? Yes, he is. And so one day you will rise too. Is Jesus ascended to the Father's side? Yes, he is. And one day we will be in the Father's presence too. Can anyone take what Jesus has? No. No one can. Neither can your future be taken from you. There is hope for broken hearts. There is hope for divided, for divided hearts. What about Solomon? Will we see him again? Will he be in heaven? There's a question, isn't there? Perhaps one best left hanging for us, maybe. I guess there'll be different views on that. But do you see what matters most? That if you've trusted in Christ, you can be absolutely certain where you will be. Because Jesus invades our story of failing. Jesus has made it so that our tragic choices, our wrong affections, our divided heart and its sorrowful end will not fall on us, but fall on him. We are not saved by our love of God we are saved by Christ's love for God in our place that would go as far as the cross, as the bottom of the deepest fall and the deepest disgrace to give us life everlasting and the first chapter in something brand new. Friends, how can our hearts be made new? How can our hearts be confident though we feel like things might fall apart because of this because it's about him because it's about how he started and it's about how he finished to the praise of his glory Amen Shall we pray? Father God, as we have reflected on this passage today, uh, we have heard a warning, but we've also heard encouragement. Uh, We've heard how the pattern of Solomon's life 
is reversed in the pattern of Jesus' life. And oh, what hope that can give us. Father, we pray that we might learn from Solomon's life. And we pray that our hearts uh, might be set on the Lord Jesus and restored in him and given hope in him. For we ask it in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.